welcome to another episode of Unburden Your Health. Let me start by wishing everyone a very happy new year. January is when all of us are excited and charged up with setting new goals. And I'm pretty sure health and wellness feature as a very prominent goal in everyone's life. Joining me today to delve into the topic of health, wellness and longevity is Dr. Marcus Rainey, who is the founder of Human Edge Enterprises. Human Edge is an investor-backed longevity science company with the vision of democratizing the health span of the workforce. Through science, data, and technology, it provides individuals with personalized biohacks to optimize their energy levels at work, home, and play. Dr. Marcus has traveled the world, climbing the sides of Mount Everest, skiing in the Arctic and the European Alps, serving as a medical officer in the Royal Air Force, as well as NASA's Kennedy Space Center. He has also recently authored the book, At the Human Edge, which looks at human physiology and extreme sports and is also on the verge of launching a cutting edge digital platform by the same name. It's great to have you on the show, Dr. Marcus. Thank you very much for having me and a very happy new year to all your listeners as well. So Marcus, uh, you know, I recently read an article, collected archives of news uh, which was published in the year 1923 about what people might expect in the year 2023. And health and wellness very prominently featured in that article where they were looking at eradication of diseases like polio, tuberculosis, cancer. But surprisingly, they were very keen to look at uh, the lifespan of an individual, how that is going to change from you know what it used to be at maybe 60, 70 years to maybe 100, 150, or 200 years as well. And I guess that's the essence of what we're going to be speaking today. So, so before we get into the subject, let me just ask you, what led you onto your journey towards healthcare and well-being? Now, I'm, I'm a student of biology. I've always been passionate about the human sciences. I think my early memories are spending long afternoons in libraries uh, near my home. I grew up in South of England. And I remember just walking over to the library and just spending hours just reading through textbooks there. Uh, and I've always been fascinated about the science of the human machine and how we can unlock that great potential. Um, before, before studying medicine, I got the opportunity, as you were mentioning in the early introduction, to um, spend and serve in the Air Force. Um, and through that, with my first degree, which was in human physiology, uh, it allowed me some interesting expeditions around the world. And spending time then in these extreme environments, whether it's mountains or the Arctic, um, human spaceflight or aviation medicine, I got to see firsthand just how incredibly anti-fragile this human frame is, this machine is, how we each have the ability to push it to the human edge, part of the pun, and unlock an incredible way of living for ourselves. When I went on to do medicine and practice as a clinician, I think those early days I began to get a little bit disenfranchised because healthcare today, the world over, through no fault of its own, it's mainly a legacy system. It's very siloed, it's disease focused, and we are mainly operating in a system of curation and then a little bit of prevention. I'm sure these are themes that we're going to go into a lot more detail today together as well. But for me, my passion was always about optimization and how do we take what we have and live the life to its fullest. So that led me down my own path. And now 20, 25 years later, I sit at this cusp of biology and technology. And on one side, looking at chronic disease, but not from a curation perspective, but from a completely avoidance perspective from the human framework itself. So that's been a little bit of my journey and, and why I'm just so obsessed with living life to its extreme. So is it mainly because of your personal experiences of your upbringing, as you mentioned, or was there you know, some sort of a, a journey through disease or some, some condition, a medical condition that also you know, brought more focus into this? I think, yes, it's been that personal journey of, um, of knowledge, which, is, which, which got me a long way here. I had 
a personal event that happened to me a few years ago. I think like many clinicians the world over when the pandemic started, I decided to take a sabbatical from what I was doing full time, which at the time wasn't really much clinical work. It was more involved on the business and managerial side of health. Right. And I volunteered as a frontline uh, medic for the city that I live in, which is Mumbai. Um, these are the days before we had any real RT-PCR as well. I mean, my work as a screening doctor was literally going slum to slum, door to door, and identifying people who were potentially suffering from COVID-19 and either managing them in the community or then escalating them right. to, a, um, to a center. Uh, but unfortunately, about four or five months into that work, I contracted the first uh, strain of the virus myself. Sure. And in those days, before we had much in terms of toolkit from a treatment perspective, I was pretty unwell with it. It took me a long time to recover. Um, I was on high dose steroids because of the multilobal pneumonia I had. I then developed a slightly strange neurological complication as it affected the skeletal muscle nerve cells in my lower limbs right. principally. And I lost a lot of strength and power. So I had to go on my own journey of rehabilitation, recuperation. And that's when I started to apply this information that I have gathered on biohacking to my own body so that I could start to come back to where I wanted sure. to be as a runner, as an athlete, as a strong uh, human being and as as some as a role model to my young kids, etc. And so that was a very personal journey for me, and right. created, I think, a conduit for me to bring that science, but then apply it not only for my life, but then um, as a passion to then build into Human Edge as a platform. As well. That's amazing, I know. And you know, it brings me to the thought that we all believe that prevention is better than cure, and we know about it. But unfortunately, especially in India, I am seeing that. You know, people almost always have to go through a similar experience as yours that they have to go through a personal incident or a medical condition to get triggered into thinking about prevention rather than, you know, thinking about it more proactively. So what has been your approach towards preventive healthcare now? And I know you are actually focusing on democratizing this whole approach of preventive healthcare, but, you know, what's been your approach now towards that? I think what you're describing is what we internally within the company call the grand awakening, which is that we each have this moment in time where we appreciate that we're not immortal. Right. Uh, for some individuals, it happens early on. For some, it happens later. For some, it's because of a personal event in their life. For others, it could be the loss of a parent or a close one or, or health care, etc. But this grand awakening is something that we each have in our journey of health. And when that moment happens, and all of us now probably thinking back can truly appreciate when that penny dropped for each of us, it changes our outlook for how we then plan to live the rest of our lives. Absolutely. Medicine, I think, has got three parts. We've got medicine 1.0, which was, I think, so apt from the paper that or the, 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 the clippings that you were describing you know, on the back of the great wars with the advent and utilization of antibiotics and sanitation systems, right. etc., we started to move to curative medicine, um, uh, mainly driven around microorganisms, etc. Then we got into medicine 2.0, which is more preventative in nature. And I think a lot of the conversations around chronic disease, etc., uh, have a role to play in this. I think for us now, we actually sit on the cusp of a new threshold, which is medicine 3.0. Right which is where we look towards the optimization of that human being. Even in the absence of any disease, even in the prevention of prevention, people who are looking at optimizing themselves at work, at home, at play, at any sphere of life, right. but being the best version in, in body and brain. And for an operating system, which our human condition has, which is a physiology and psychology, we can then apply a framework of technology and through operating system analogies and say, well, then how do you hack that? Sure. If you want to optimize, how can you hack that on a day-to-day -day basis to then optimize and elevate and be that best self? And, and that's sort of the, the sandbox that Human sure. Edge is trying to create and play. In. Absolutely. So I think I was just thinking as you were speaking that you mentioned optimization and I'm thinking biohacking. Optimization <coughs> equals to biohacking. So let's just dive straight into it. What, according to you, is biohacking and how do we use biohacking to truly optimize, as you say, yep. uh, human, yep. human health, human behavior, 
you know the, the whole human body to its full potential yeah so i think it's a good time to discuss the definition of biohacking right. for sure because there are many many d- d- uh, uh, definitions out there on one extreme you'll have individuals who talk about whole body stem uh, cell transplants or pellets being inserted into the gluteus muscle with a variety of different sort of slow release molecules and chemicals sure. testosterone endocrine molecules etc that's not the space that i operate in what i prefer to focus our attention on is lifestyle interventions because when you look at the numbers the probability of any of us reaching 100 years old is about 75 to 80% down to the lifestyle choices we make the people we're surrounded with and the physical environment that we sure. are immersed in about 16 to 20% is down to genetics right right so people often and i get very frustrated with this because a lot of people come and say oh, well you know doc is just you know it's my genes or it's who i am etc and i i keep having to remind them that no that is a that is that may be a limitation but actually we have a much higher degree of agency to create change through lifestyle interventions so when we talk about biohacking we principally talk about the five pillars which are sleep fueling the body movement and exercise your environment and your mood and emotion sure now these five pillars or vectors as we call them in human edge all have an ability to influence your your trajectory of health span life span and therefore longevity right but the lovely thing about all five of these is that they are in direct control we each have the ability to control all of these five things and the the <clears throat> the um the way we align them is very purposeful we always start with sleep because that is the place that we need to begin our journey towards greater health and well-being then we look at how we fuel the body macronutrients micronutrients supplementation caffeine hydration etc microbiomes we then look at movement and exercise and the five forms of movement and exercise which for your listeners are aerobic anaerobic strength training flexibility and balance we then look at the environment which for us are the people places and technologies that we're immersed in and then finally we look at mood and emotion right and the order of these are very purposeful because even though you may want to improve your mood and emotion you can't start there because if you're not sleeping the prescribed 7 to 8 hours a day you're naturally going to not get enough rem sleep your body's not going to have had the opportunity to clear through the neurotoxins overnight you're going to wake up more agitated more frustrated your decision making is going to be poorer sure. you're going to make the worst decision when it comes to eating etc so we try and standardize this in terms of a journey in a particular order but for us biohacking is about giving us each control over these lifestyle choices that we make on a day to day space wonderful wonderful and you know we'll deep dive into each of these but before i get into it you know i just wanted to touch upon that whole aspect of genes as you say you know people say you know i'm genetically predisposed or it's in my genes the way i look at it and would love to get your thoughts that when we talk about genes uh it actually tells you uh how you are predisposed to maybe a medical condition which actually forces you to look at certain of these biohacks a little more diligently than you might have otherwise so if you are predisposed to a cardiac condition i guess you are also moving towards focusing on movement exercise food more aggressively than you might have otherwise done so have you seen people using genes to their advantage or to their disadvantage no absolutely so i think for our listeners perhaps we can spend a moment or two just helping them appreciate the difference between your know, genes which is the information that we carry within our dna the expression of those genes which is what we call epigenetics and then how that expression then translate in terms of the physical characteristics that we then have in our body which is the phenotype right so each of us gets two copies of the chromosomes one from our mom one from our dad so 23 chromosomes that we carry but within each of those chromosomes for each particular gene and there are about 20000 genes 
uh, active genes in the human genome, right. um, there are different variations of those. And certain ones of those can be expressed and certain can be reduced depending upon what is happening to the organism. So sure. in situations where there is an acute stress event, then we see that the transcription, i.e. the expression of certain genes goes up versus other types of environments where the transcription or the expression of those genes go down. And that fundamentally then changes the phenotype of people sure. uh, and how they express, whether it's skin color, whether it's body hair, etc., etc. So I'll give people a very practical advantage of this, uh, not advantage, but, but, yeah, but example of this for a common thing that we each see, which is caffeine consumption, right? So we, a lot of us have heard this idea of how caffeine is advantageous from a longevity right. perspective. And epidemiologically, we know that people who consume one to two cups of coffee every day or caffeine have a longevity benefit versus people who don't have any caffeine at all, right? But the problem with caffeine is that it is a stimulant and it can affect your sleep. And that's because right. of the half-life of caffeine, typically four to six hours. But what we know is that we don't each metabolize caffeine at the same rate, right? Sure. There is a particular gene that we carry. Some of us are fast metabolizers of caffeine. Some of us are slow metabolizers of caffeine. And some of us just sit in the middle, right? It's a pretty normal bell-shaped distribution of that. And so for people who are interested, they can very easily take a simple to do over the counter saliva based test and they will know right. whether their body metabolizes caffeine faster or whether it metabolizes caffeine slower. And we use that to then suggest to people what is the time of day that they should optimally stop drinking coffee, because if they're a fast metabolizer of caffeine, then they could probably have that last cup of coffee, 4 p.m., 6 p.m., right. and it is unlikely to then disturb the night's sleep. But if they're a slow metabolizer of coffee, then they definitely need to stop drinking caffeine by 2 p.m. Otherwise, that concentration of caffeine will be very high in the bloodstream. Sure. So this is just one really practical example for how we can take a simple test, but it has a huge um, effect on our lives because right. we can use caffeine as a drug to our advantage to stimulate us and also then not affect our nighttime sleep so that we can get our optimal amount of recovery uh, as well. So it's really interesting now because these saliva-based tests have become so freely available. Right. The cost has really plummeted as well. And at the clinician side, we're beginning to understand more and more about how we can interpret that information to the advantage for the organism, the client and the patient that sits in front of us. Wonderful example, uh, Marcus. And I think I love the way you explained that how, you know, uh, epigenetics and phenotypes are connected and how the way in which we address sleep, food, exercise, environment and our mood can actually play a role on both epigenetics and phenotype expression eventually. Let's start with sleep first and, you know, with the kind of distractions that are available today you know you are always connected to a digital device practically 24 by 7 what's been your experience and you know what's been your uh, analysis of the way in which people actually look to be sleep deprived what are some of the biohacks that you are suggesting to people on how do we overcome these challenges of sleep or disorders you know being distracted i've seen kids keep their phone on with them, you know, answer a call middle of the night. So I think the sound sleep, the whole concept of sound sleep practically has gone away. So, so your thoughts on that, Marcus? Yeah, you know, I always begin from a position of, because I'm just a very data-centric individual, I like to start from a position that I can't treat what I can't measure. And so with all of the folks that we work with at Human Edge, whether they're CEOs, whether they're uh, IPL cricketers, whether they're extreme athletes, Olympians, etc., we always try to understand their physiology and their behaviors through data. And what's really amazing about the world we live in today in 2023 is the, is the availability for simple devices that can really sit all around us to generate insights about our health and our performance, right? On my left ring, um, uh, I swapped my wedding ring for this a, a year or so ago. This is called the Aura Ring device. Right. Uh, it's, it's one of the most advanced sleep physiology tracking tools avail available anywhere in the world. It's a Finnish company. 
Um, and there are 17 sensors on this little ring. And, it, you know, we sit and we give it, as I said, to all of our players and athletes and CEOs, etc. But what it does is it generates a huge amount of information right. on the sleeping pattern and the sleep physiology of the user. And I'll, 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 I'll give you some examples of some of the insights that we can get. So the first fundamental thing it does is it not only tells us the total amount of sleep, which is useful to know, but within that total amount of sleep, how much time is actually being spent in the various phases. So some of our listeners will probably appreciate that there are four main phases. Right. Three of them are non-REM and then there's a REM phase. And within the non-REM components, you've got deep sleep, which is hugely advantageous because that's where our physical body recuperates itself, our cardiovascular system, our bones, our musculoskeletal system, etc. And then in the REM phase, that's when our mental and our emotional self is re recovering itself as well. So when I look at the total sleep uh, data on an individual, let's say it's for an IPL athlete and, and he's about to step onto the field uh, tomorrow to play a match, then when I can see his deep sleep component, I will know whether his body has had the optimal amount of recovery, physical recovery it needs in order for him, him to be the best when he goes out onto the field. Whereas if I have a CEO, and in this instance, let's say she's about to give her quarterly earnings reporting call as a publicly listed company head, then I will be much more interested in the REM component. Because if she's not received the right amount of REM over the last two to three days, her mental faculties, her ability to empathize, to craft her language, to concentrate, sure. to have that emotional coefficient that we all need to be expressive human beings will naturally be lower. So that simple number of knowing those four bands help us understand where the person is. And from that point, we can then start to biohack an individual to optimize the deep sleep, to optimize the REM sleep, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to these four phases, we can also get information about the heart rate variability, right. which is a degree of stress that the body is under. Sure. We can look at the resting heart rate. We can look at body temperature, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation. I mean, it's incredible how this one tiny piece of tech right. can give us. And, you know, when you were in med school, when I was in med school, we, we would have to put them in a sleep lab to even begin to think about getting some of this information. Sure. And now we can get it with anyone with a simple device like this sitting and sleeping in their own homes. No, I can't, I, I can't agree with you more. And I know that, you know, the importance of sleep is uh, so underrated in today's time and age. Uh, people probably give least amount of importance to sleep. They take it for granted. And uh, maybe if you could just share quickly, you know, maybe in that case of the CEO, uh, you know, if you did find an abnormality in her sleep pattern, what would be the biohack that you might want to suggest to her? No, for sure. So if we divide the biohacks across the five vectors, there are things that can be done and we've got a massive library for each of these things. I think when it comes to optimization of sleep, some of the most simplest things that we can each do every single day, firstly, temperature, right? Our bodies get its most restorative sleep between a temperature band of 17 to 19 degrees Celsius, right. right? So if you can put the air conditioning on at home and ensure that the temperature is optimized for you, that's a first starting point. Second is air quality for a lot of listeners, and you can probably hear it in my own throat as well. Right. Uh, the AQI, the air quality index in India this year has been disastrous. And this is one of the biggest reasons why we have sleep disturbances. In fact, sleep apnea and the progression to cardiovascular disease right. is in many instances linked back to the PM 2.5, the particulate matter greater than 2.5, right. and people just not being able to oxygenate them, their, themselves correctly as well. Sure. So controlling the air quality of the room with a simple device which cleans the air is another thing. The third is micronutrients. The globe is magnesium deficient. Every single human being around the world. Right. And that's because the soil doesn't have enough magnesium in it anymore. So 400 milligrams of magnesium, either magnesium glycinate or magnesium citrate as a sustained release salt taken at 8 p.m. is a very powerful micronutrient to enhance your sleep scores and your mood and your immunity as well will benefit from that as well. Then we can look at technology utilization. So simple things like disconnecting from technology 
60 to 90 minutes before you go to bed, right. uh, changing the power of the wattage. So in my living room where I'm sitting here, I've got two types of bulbs. I've got a bulb which is at 12 watts and I've got a bulb which is at 6 to 8 watts. So right. after 7 p.m., I switch to the 6 to 8 watt bulbs so that the ambient light around me begins to reduce. Sure. I also have in my cabinet here behind me a pair of yellow lens glasses, which I wear whenever I'm doing a live after 7 p.m. So these yellow lens actually block the polarization of blue light, which gets emitted from the screen. Sure. And all of this does is it helps elevate the uh, secretion of melatonin from the pineal gland in the brain so that my body is well optimized for sleep. So there are so many things that we can all do. Wonderful. And I just wanted to give our listeners the opportunity to appreciate how they're really, really small. But all of these small things, you started your introduction, introduction by talking about habits and behavior change as we enter the new year. Right. All of these small things compound itself. If you make a 1% change by the end of the year, you're 37 times better off than you were at the beginning. So it's the power of compounding that we see in financial investments that we want to bring to our health investments and therefore create a longevity benefit for us all. No, I can't agree more that you know we are finding the outcome of the choices that we make. And I guess the way you're you know, explaining sleep and the other force, food, exercise, your environment and your mood, these are all choices that we can control and how they can make a big difference. Now, you mentioned the others, you know, food as fuel, uh, movement and exercise, your environment and nature and food and the, the mood and emotions. Are each of these five pillars, as you mentioned, uh, weighed equally? You know, do each of them contribute 20% each so that collectively it's 100% or does it differ in different individuals? So each of them have got a role to play in all of us. The really interesting about these five vectors is that they're all actually very deeply integrated with one another. Right. Um, how well rested your body is will directly influence the fuel choices you make the next day. If you're sleep deprived, your concentration of leptin and ghrelin is going to be differential from what your normal levels will be. And you will automatically start to be attracted to fatty, saturated fats and carbohydrate-based foods the next day. Sure. It's no wonder why people who have not got enough sleep will fill the next day with lots of caffeine, with lots of sugar and lots of fatty foods. That's a biological response. Right. It's not something that is in conscious control. In the same way, how you fuel the body will directly influence how well you're able to move and exercise. Right? I've got the Mumbai Marathon. I'm running the 42-kilometer race next Sunday. So already, actually, it started for me three weeks ago. The food choices that I make for three weeks ago up until race day right. will influence my body's ability because my glycogen stores in my liver and my muscles need to be optimized. My salt levels in my muscles need to be optimized so that I don't cramp. I want to make sure that there's no alcohol in my system so that my my, uh, my, my, my body, my liver is able to clear all the toxins, sure. et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a chain reaction, right? So each of these five have a role to play on the next, on the next, on the next. Saying that, each of us will clearly have one area that we need to focus on. So in a country like India, where we have 60 to 90 million people living with diabetes, probably about 200 or 300 million with pre-diabetes and metabolic syndrome, right. clearly fuel is a big, big component. And that's why I often wear the glucose monitor patch on my tricep right. so that I can measure. And maybe we can talk about that as well. So we'll each have our own unique strengths and challenges, but each of us have to go through this journey of five. And it's a nonstop journey, by the way. There's no destination. There's no final point. Sure. It's a constant journey of self-improvement for each of us. Very interestingly, I was thinking about, as you were speaking about, you know, how uh, triggers get stimulated because of your sleep. Uh, can you maybe explain what is the trigger for smokers that, you know, uh, because they also constantly need to have, you know, that, uh, that, you know, they wake up in the morning and they want to have a puff of smoke uh, to maybe trigger themselves and how that sort of, you know, the linkage between maybe diet, sleep, exercise and smoking, maybe you could share some, some thoughts on that. 
I think for all of us, our triggers are a combination of psychological triggers and physiological triggers as well. Now, we started talking a few minutes ago about genes, and genes do have a role to play in our decision-making, our willpower, and the choices we make in life as well, right? It's not to say that there's a genetic reason for why people smoke or not or don't smoke, right? But there's definitely a genetic predominance around people who have more addictive behaviors because they get addicted to dopamine or adrenaline more easier than other types of people as well, right? So that needs to be taken in comparison as well. I think when we look at smoking as as a habit, psychologically, the triggers for people might be boredom. It might be a self of of fulfillment. It might be the socialization, which often comes from smoking as an activity, which you're doing around other people as well. It might be um, uh, it might be part and parcel of your day routine, right? Many people have certain times of the day that they naturally gravitate towards a cigarette, etc. And then on the physiological side, we know that it's the nicotine in the cigarettes, which is the most addictive component of that. Right. And nicotine is a highly addictive substance in itself. On top of that, you layer on the dopaminergic feedback loop, which can come through some of the psychological triggers. And now all of a sudden, you've got such a powerful uh, uh, bad habit. You've got the nicotine-fueled physiological response. And you have the dopaminergic fueled psychological response on top of that uh, as well. So I often find that the best way of working with people who are trying to break a habit, whether it's smoking or alcohol or pornography or, or any sort of digital addiction, is actually to go back to the behavior, sure. right? A lot of us have a problem of starting that um, journey by thinking about the action. And I give people this as an example. I have two people sitting in front of me. Both of them are trying to give up smoking. I offer both of them a a cigarette and I say, why don't you light up? One person says to me, Doc, I'm not going to smoke because I'm trying to give up smoking. The second person says to me, Doc, I'm not going to smoke because I am a non-smoker. Who do you think will be more likely at not taking that cigarette out of the two? Sure. It's going to be the second person because they have now changed their identity. Their identity is no longer one about smoking. So if you want to lose weight, if you want to run a marathon, if you want to quit a bad habit, if you want to instill a new habit, the best way of doing it is start to change the narrative which plays in your head and imbibe the personality and the behaviors that that person would want to be. So if you want to take up and your goal is to run a, a half marathon next year at the Mumbai Marathon, then call yourself a runner and think about all the things that a runner would do, whether it's how they prioritize sleep, the way they eat, the way they move every day, the, the people that they keep around them, the people they follow on Instagram, the newsletters they subscribe to. Because as soon as you start to wear that uniform and that becomes your personality, you will automatically subconsciously start to shift your behaviors. And the best reading resources I've ever seen on this is James Clear's work called Atomic Habits. It's it's a fantastic book to read on uh, on breaking habits and forming new behaviors. No, truly, I think you are the, you know, you've, you've become the company that you keep and or the thoughts that you generate. And if you keep the right kind of company and the thoughts are, you know, positive, as you said, I think you will try and, uh, you know, amplify those in your own daily habits. You know, coming back to smoking, what I was told is that because you're smoking, you tend to have respiratory problems. Because you have respiratory problems, you have sleep disorders. So when you have to wake up, you need that nicotine kick to keep you alert. And that sort of has, you know, a vicious cycle, as you just explained. Coming back to micronutrients and you spoke about magnesium uh, any other micronutrients that you find in today's uh, you know food habits that you f- have found deficient or you know some thoughts on that it's sad that we live in a world where the food that we eat doesn't have the nutrients that our body requires i mean anyway uh, there are essential amino acids uh, 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 proteins are built about amino acids. Those are the subcomponents, and 
uh, not all of the amino acids are available in nature. Nine of them have to be uh, 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 exogenously absorbed by the human body from our food. Um, uh, so there are nine essential amino acids. Apart from those nine amino acids, there are also vitamins, minerals, and cofactors. Right. So all in all, there are 31 micronutrients that our human body has to have on a day-to-day -day basis in order to just meet our own metabolic and physiological requirements, whether it's certain pathways, whether it's certain enzymatic reactions, whether it's the day-to-day -day upkeep of cells as well. Now, I'm not a proponent of taking supplements for the sake of supplements. I wish right. that our food could be our medicine, right? Um, it was said by Hippocrates many thousands of years ago, let food be thy medicine. Right. But unfortunately, we live in a world where the soil that the food is being grown in is 92% deficient in micronutrients. If it's not there in the soil, it's not going to get into the plant. It's not going to get its way into the animal. And therefore, it can't go through the food chain to get to us. The chemicals, the pesticides, the hormones, the antibiotics that are filling our food, our soil, and our water are corrupting our bodies right. as well. So we need to supplement. Um, like you as a clinician, I see so much deficiency, uh, particularly here in South Asia with vitamin D. I think 90% plus of people are vitamin D deficient. Right. The B complex is another massive one, 85, 90% plus of people are vitamin B complex deficient. Magnesium, I said, is a global phenomenon. Right. And then there are many, many others as well. Omega-3 is a big challenge for people. Sure. The nine amino acids, etc. Zinc, iron, uh, particularly with, with young women, we see a lot of uh, iron deficiency, anemia, sure. which is one, one of the biggest challenges in pregnancy as well. So I think it's our role to educate and raise the awareness. It's our role to ensure that we lobby the right institutions to make these micronutrients available at a cost-effective mechanism and for people to understand how they should consume them because some of them are toxic, right? The ADEC, A, D, E, and K right. uh, can't just be taken without a prescription or without knowledge of your own levels and therefore blood tests are really important as well. So it needs to be consumed responsibly sure. through the action of a clinician as well. Sure. And I was just reflecting back on what you spoke earlier that all these five vectors or pillars, how they're interconnected. And I was thinking about the last one, which is mood and emotion, that how, you know, exercise is a great mood elevator, but exercise is dependent on a good night's sleep and the right kind of diet. And if you exercise in the best environment, you know, as you have the right air to breathe or maybe, you know, the right environment. So how, you know, this entire, these five vectors come to play in building the right mood. So maybe your thoughts on the role exercise plays and how that can dovetail into building the right mood and environment no the best the best medicine we can prescribe as doctors is exercise our bodies are machines in the same way that you wouldn't want to keep your beautiful car in the garage for 20 years never use you'll protect it from rust and the elements right. but I guarantee if you try and turn that engine on after 20 years it's not going to go anywhere um, we need to use our body. If you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, we each lose about 1% to 3% of muscle mass and bone per decade after the age of 40. That can escalate up as we get into older years, particularly women who are approaching the menopause. Men, as they approach their own andropause through a significant reduction in testosterone and DHEA on the, as they get to 50 and 60, etc., so we need to do resistance forms of exercise to ensure that our muscle mass is optimized. We need to get at least 30 to 40 minutes of zone two training every single day so right. that our cardiovascular system, our blood pressure, and it has a role on our brain health because brain-derived neurotrophic factor is a neurochemical um, which is secreted when we do some aerobic exercise every day. And it's hugely important for keeping neurodegenerative disorders uh, at bay as well. Right. We need to do a little bit of zone five, which is anaerobic training one to two times a week. And this can be uh, high intensity interval training, a racket sport like squash or tennis, Tabata, uh, et cetera. And then as we get older in life, 40, 50, 60, 70 uh, 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 and beyond, we need to ensure 
that we are getting flexibility and balance because one of the sure. primary reasons of mortality in old age is a fall i mean i remember when i was in med school we had a scary statistic where 50% of of people over the age of 70 who fall and break their neck of femur right. are dead within 12 months True. and it's not because of their fall itself it's because of the secondary effects uh, a deep vein thrombosis a pulmonary embolism a secondary pneumonia right. uh, a septicemia etc and that fall is because of osteopenia and muscle loss uh, so we need to ensure that we are investing in all five forms of movement and exercise from the age of 30 so that we are laying down the right uh, foundation to keep us in good stead when we get into our older years and how does this affect your mood i mean you know i mean it's it's been said that you know the Sorry. best mood elevator is exercise so you know you mm. know what's been your experience your your insight on the role of exercise on mood So from a secretion perspective we see immediately after exercise there is a secretion of do- of dopamine there is a secretion of other forms of endorphins there's adrenaline which is a good stress hormone which is secreted right. cortisol is the bad stress adrenaline is the good stress so these combination of drugs create a beautiful environment inside of your brain which elevates your mood it improves your health your physical mental and emotional health but it also elevates your mood as well we find that people who build in 20 to 30 minutes of exercise and movement every day uh, subjectively report higher levels of energy throughout right. the rest of the day we find that their focus their concentration and their memory is enhanced particularly into old age principally sure. because of the growth of the hippocampus which is part of the brain involved in memory uh memory function etc right. so really there is it is the best form for mood emotion physical health all the various facets of health just getting in that little bit of movement and exercise every single day yeah uh, and i can vouch for that completely marcus that you know three days a week i have a personal trainer with whom i work out 60 to 90 minutes and it's definitely the best way to start my day of course because of my age i don't work out the same intensity 6 days a week but then over the weekend i either play golf or i go cycling and i found that you know 3 days of working yeah. in a gym and 2 days of outdoor activity just make you know my entire week so much better uh, which brings me to you know the whole yeah. role of environment and i know you are a big outdoorsy person i see how you spend time on the outdoors with your kids and your family uh, so maybe your thoughts on you know the role environment plays in our life I love nature. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as a species right now is that we've protected ourselves from the nat- from the natural um from the natural world too much. We've become too comfortable being comfortable. Nature allows us to be uncomfortable and it's in that right. discomfort that we get our greatest growth. Uh whether it's um temperature uh and sure. that's why cold water immersion and cold showers is suddenly becoming so trendy these days whether it's in heat and that's why sauna therapy and steam rooms are so trendy from a biohacking perspective these days the soil spending time with soil barefoot in soil allows our bodies to be exposed to microorganisms which are really healthy for our microbiome not only sitting inside of our gut but what we have on our skin and in our nasopharynx uh, as well right. right we have countries around the world like new zealand uh, and scotland um and um and iceland where doctors can prescribe a pass to spend time in a national park for their patient because there has now been clinical evidence to wow. show an improvement in mental health scores by spending 30 to 40 minutes in nature uh every week so nature is wow. an incredible resource for us we're abusing it we're not extracting the value from it and i'm actually that is my biggest fear when you started to talk about 100 years ago what people thought about 2023 my biggest biggest worry and as a young dad right. i worry so much because of my kids and i'm trying to imbibe so much of my love for nature and outdoors into them is what is the world going to look like 100 years from now what is this nature going to look like whether it's the climate crisis whether it's the air quality whether it's the soil we only have 50 years of soil left 
after that we will not be able to grow any plants anywhere right. in the world uh it's 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 a scary prospect and so i really encourage all of our listeners to spend time in nature whilst we have it and to play our own part in whatever way we can to ensure that we're passing on this great legacy this great resource to the next generation because that's what um that's what being a human being is really at its core true true absolutely marcus i think you just uh, said it that uh, you know we have to make sure that we pass on this earth or this planet in a healthier condition to our next generation uh, because i think the whole world is concerned about climate change soil erosion and we can see so many prominent people uh, you know taking measures to bring awareness around these areas um if you were to list your top 5 spots uh outdoor spots maybe in india or overseas what would be your top 5 nature spots that you have experienced in your lifetime so far top 5 top 5 maybe right, people could right. take inspiration from one. that let then. me um <laughs> in no particular order just uh, just things that come straight to mind um right. last year my wife and i we had the great opportunity to be part of an expedition to summit mount kilimanjaro um it was a it was an expedition to raise right. money and awareness around vaccine inequity for africa so it was something that was very close to our heart because of the medical program that she and i have been running sure. but i wanted to make sure that i visited mount kilimanjaro because in a decade from now there won't be any snow at the crater that ice that is there which is hundreds uh, you know not hundreds it's actually about 20 30000 years old will not be there anymore and i remember walking up to the summit in one of the most physically demanding things i've ever done and seeing the sun come up around the curvature right. of the earth and the pink light of the sun just refract wow. through the icy glacier i mean, i was i was bawling with tears for well over an hour just seeing the majesty of nature after such a physically demanding feat so that's something that i've nice. that i've uh, that i've greatly enjoyed i've had the opportunity to spend time in the arctic and uh, in fact my rain and i were going back at the end of march uh, i'm part of an expedition with a group of business leaders looking at mental resiliency in extreme environments and so we're going to be spending two weeks under the northern lights in minus sure. 30 degrees celsius completely self sufficient uh and again nice. the arctic is somewhere that i love because of the pristineness of it it's untouched much by human um uh intervention we're deep in the in in nature in the raw elements of the cold which is a really really tough place to be um uh what else have i is this in I scandinavia be, that you're I, going yeah, it's, in it's scandinavia it's in northern so? europe uh, on the border of sweden and norway So that was the that was the okay. second um I love running and uh, one of the nicest places that I've ever had the opportunity to run was in in Europe I ran the Dubrovnik marathon a few years ago and that was on the southern sort of Mediterranean coastline beautiful okay, nice. uh sea line uh of that sort of azure type of color streaming in a very different landscape right. um I mean literally I I mean I'm I'm hard pressed because my brain is going in a hundred different directions there is so much of the world yeah <laughs> no but that's a good start I think you know that, that's a good start I think Croatia uh, the arctic uh, mount kilimanjaro in fact uh, two colleagues of mine recently did the same summit in mount kilimanjaro uh, one is in the mid 50s and one is in the late 80 uh, in the late 60s and they both had you know phenomenal experiences to share so i think that's something which i am also looking forward to so tell me i mean do you see any wellness trends uh, that are prevalent currently or do you see any wellness trends within this year and what is your focus on unburdening your health so i think the objective of this podcast is to you know make people aware of what are the health trends and what they can do to unburden their own health so i would you know to end this i would love to get your thoughts on some of the wellness trends and some of the things that you are doing to improve your own own, own personal health sure so i think in terms of trends we are moving increasingly towards a data centric world where information and data i mean all of us produce about 2 megabytes of data a second will be used to unlock human health both from health stores and non health stores as well um so it's much more personalization right. at scale 
using digital technology and intelligence, uh, which is being built on the back of the data and information which is coming in. The second, I think, a big trend is is even more of a migration towards integrative, holistic well-being away from these sort of siloed approaches of disease care and healthcare and bringing the individual human being at the center, but bringing all of these various aspects of physical, mental, emotional, environmental, et cetera, et cetera, uh, around Mm -hmm. that uh, as well. And the third, I think with with technologies like GPTW really showing us the power of of information and mobile-based information is sort of going to be in this beautiful um, symbiosis which will start to be crafted, I think, from 2023 and beyond between AI technology and human intelligence, empathy. So AI AI and empathy coming together and then creating solutions for each of us through that process. And certainly these are aspects that at Human Edge we keep at our core and we are ensuring that we're building around there as well. In terms of my own journey, uh, I want to be more mindful this year. I think like many people, the last few years have been a roller coaster treadmill of survival um, in ensuring that we just right. get through the pain and the challenges that the world just kept throwing at us. Um, and what I'm right. individually trying to do more of and hope to do more of this year is not slowing down, but creating space. I think the, 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 the space between stimulus and response is where we live our lives. And the bigger that space can right. be, the more impactful our response can be uh, in that process as well. So I'm trying to extend the space that I have in my life and be more impactful and meaningful with the, day, with the way I live my day-to-day life. Wonderful. I think uh, if I can paraphrase that into seeing, being more aware of each moment that we experience, and not trying and capturing everything on a camera, but trying to capture it visually, you know, through our, our nostrils, yeah. through our ears, and just experiencing the moment of being aware in the moment. I think that's perhaps, you know, the best way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. And I look forward to a healthier, better future for all of us. Thanks to the work that you are doing in biohacking and making lives better for all of us. Good luck, Dr. Marcus. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me on the show. And that's a wrap for our episode today. Thank you so much for listening. New episodes are out every alternate Tuesday. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our show. You can listen to our show on all major podcasting platforms like Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and wherever you listen to your podcast form. If you are an Apple or an iOS user, you can share your ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app. If you have any questions related to health or would like to share your feedback, you can reach me on my social media handles at Dr. Sanjay Arora on LinkedIn and Facebook and Dr. Underscore Sanjay Arora on Instagram.